Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. He knows it well. Gene Munster, for years at Piper Jaffray, Gene Munster with Loop Ventures now on where we are in technology. Gene, I know John's got a lot of questions on philosophy. Let me ask you a cash question. They raised the dividend 6% at Apple. They've retired 24% of the stock in about five years. What's the January 1st cash return to Apple to shareholders? Can I say it's as high as 7%? Yeah, it's, it's in, that's exactly the, the right number if you look at the dividend plus the buyback. Uh, that's the numerical piece. There's also the message behind that $50 billion increase, something that I did not anticipate, unprecedented yeah. in these times. And I think uh, it, it uh, is probably elementary to connect the dots that that is a sign that they believe that despite 2020 largely being a throwaway year for Apple and most companies, I think that it will. Uh, the company feels confident about the cash flow to continue to support this massive uh, growth opportunity long term. Yeah, disappointment this morning and overnight, Gene, that we didn't get a forecast. But from what I hear from you, are you saying that is the guidance? That is the forecast. It's the increase yeah. in a buyback. Right, that's well said, John. The, uh, that that is what investors should undoubtedly take away from this too. And another piece uh, around the forecasting is that the product line is intact. These are product companies. I mean, every company, Facebook is a product company, Google, Apple. uh, It's a little bit more uh, clear just because they have physical products. But ultimately, is keeping that product roadmap on track is critical. And what uh, if I would kind of take a step back and look at this quarter and the contours of the quarter, I think that the message is that, uh, yes, it's difficult. Uh, that they will be impacted, but ultimately they're making the right decisions to be leaders and to benefit. So what, if you're going to put all this into the math, the business is probably going to be down 5 or 10% in the June quarter, but fast forwarding to next year, it'll probably be up 15%. Uh, so I think we're going to see some kind of a return to growth off of easy comps, but a return to growth nonetheless next year. Yeah, it's kind of amazing that this is the kitchen sink year for 2020 uh, when you think about what some of these companies are throwing in. And yet Apple still managed to eke out a profit and increase dividends uh, and share buybacks. I'm wondering if in some ways we're seeing actually a strengthening of the core businesses of some of the big tech companies with the idea of diversification. We're seeing that with Apple with an increase in sales away from their iPhone uh, product and towards services, which they've been pushing. And we've seen this certainly uh, with Facebook and, and, and some of the other things I mean, are you seeing this pretty much across the board, diversification and a greater resilience of big tech, despite what the share price is saying? Well, I think uh, you have to look at it like Fang on a case-by-case basis. But in the case of Google and Facebook, it is, is uh, less diversification, more about their core advertising businesses. Not a lot has changed there. In the case of Apple, you're exactly right. I mean, they've had the services theme for a long time, wearables out of nowhere, AirPods has had an impact. They don't break out the wearable segment, but based on comments that they periodically make, we can back into what that growth is. And so in the, the March quarter, it was up 24% year over year. That compares to up 44 and 50% in the two previous quarters. So it did decelerate and they expect it to decelerate again, but that does not change the message. You're absolutely right. Is that in Apple's case, uh, this is still uh, a large part of their business is iPhone, half of the business. But ultimately, this is going to be much more than an iPhone story longer term. All those wearables and 
they did give a teaser if you're uh, curious about some future features within Apple Watch that should continue to boast the wearable segment. Just got a headline crossed in a Bloomberg. It comes from an oil company, Exxon, posting its first quarterly Small loss company. in at least yeah. 32 years. And of course, the big oil companies have got to cut back on CapEx. So let's move to Amazon. Amazon has this amazing luxury of acting counter-cyclically, just flicking the spend switch all over again. And when Jeff Bezos says you may want to take a seat, which seat are you in, Gene? Are you in the back seat or the front seat? Because if I'm a shareholder right now, I'm just surprised how disappointed some people are that here's a man leading a company willing to invest in his company at a time like this so it's in a better position in years to come. I think that investors are, are largely on board with everything that he's doing. The stock has moved higher since uh, you know the, the, the peaks in the market, so it's near all-time highs, obviously down today. But I think that the big message is investors are largely supportive of that. I want to put quickly into context the amount of uh, spending that he's talking about, the sit-down, the $4 billion, what does that mean? relative to their past is in the September quarter last year, they talked about a $900 million step up over the next or in that quarter, the September 19 quarter, 900 million for same day uh, delivery and AWS investment. So we're talking about essentially a 4X acceleration off of an already high number. So this is some uh, pretty steep um, spending that they're going through. The right thing longer term, Amazon is going to become foundational to the U.S. in terms of infrastructure, delivery, commerce, all that. But I, I think when, as an investor, one question, front seat, back seat, is uh, what, do you, what do you pay for this ultimately? And yeah. uh, I think that uh, you know, they generated $2.5 billion in gap net income. Apple generated $11.2 billion, and they both had the same $1.2 trillion market cap. So I think there is the question about valuation that has to be answered. Well, is that going to come through the cloud and 70% of business or whatever it is, or Gene, does it just come through this continued capture of retail? I should point out, folks, that as Amazon was dazzling all, including John Farrell, with uh, their public performance, J. Crow, J.C. Penney, Macy's are on oxygen. I, I, I mean, Gene, do they have more room to take retail, or is this all going to be done with the cloud? Uh Probably more room in retail. Cloud is more competitive. They're not growing as fast relative to the other cloud competitors in AWS. Still a big business, the largest one out there. But it's, let's just take the retail piece alone. Is that it seems obvious that e-commerce is uh, done well, but it's still relatively small. Call it fifteen percent of what people spend in the U.S. And so the offline piece, what they can do there about transferring delivery, making some of that frictionless, bringing more of that online. It's still an incredible opportunity, yeah. the biggest opportunity for the company. Gene, this has been too short. Let's do it again. Gene Munster, Luke Ventures, uh, uh, with us Thanks, today Gene. on Technology, where we are. That's what we love, folks. Great conversations with the like of Mr. Munster. John's introduction there, Mohammed, and I think it really points to the president and his trip to Arizona, manufactured here for, I believe, May 5th to Honeywell. Real simple. Does he have forward momentum away from the eight zip codes covering him in the East Coast media? That's a re that's, I think that's the, sort of the million-dollar question um, him and his team are trying to figure out. I, I'm really happy you started out with the presidential approval number overall. It was John's um, idea, not mine. Yeah, yeah so it's 49. <laughs> um, but what's interesting is that when we asked sort of you know, March to April, um, how people are doing in terms of these key actors in the crisis. Uh, the president and Congress actually lost the most support. So in uh, March, he had 60% approval on how he was handling the crisis. In April, he had 50 
Um, Congress went from 59 to 48. So I, I wouldn't leave too much into uh, the tick up to 49. It's obviously an ongoing sort of saga. What's really interesting is that unlike um, most periods uh, in presidential approval eras, um, there's a lot happening right now. I mean, there are a few times when the president of the United States is directly addressing the nation on a daily basis. Um, we've polled on whether or not people are tuning in to the uh, press conferences to get information. Um, and a, a minority of Americans are doing that. As you could imagine, Republicans are tuning in more than Democrats. But on the whole, I think it's still really early to sort of make too much um, of any movement there. Right. The other really key factors are, um, as you know, the economy. And right. I think uh, whoever is going to come out sort of on top in terms of figuring out how to get America out of this situation, um, instinctively for the politicians, right, is going to get a reward. And that's, I think, what everybody's grasping towards. Interestingly, though, when you ask Americans about how to get out of this economic hole, their trust is in lo local actors. Um, so Americans, when you ask them, for example, um, who do you have confidence in uh, in terms of getting things back to normal with the economy? The governor in your state gets 68 percent getting a great deal or fair amount um, yeah. of confidence. And that's the highest. It goes down after that to Jerome Powell, 58 percent. Steve Mnuchin, 51, President Trump, 47, the Republican leaders, 47, and then the Democratic leaders in Congress, 46. So Democrat or Republican, um, that's not where America is really looking to yeah, well, solve but, this problem. But that's exactly where I wanted to go, this idea of what Americans are looking for to direct whether they like someone or they're not. I mean, in terms of President Trump's approval rating, what are the main issues that week to week seem to sway the population the most? Is it the consumer comfort, which seems to be deteriorating, deteriorating rapidly? Is it the expectation about personal financial situation? What are the main issues here? The, the major issue is the economy. I mean, we've been asking uh, Americans two questions and creating something called the Economic Confidence Index since the 90s. And it basically asks how economic conditions are for you today and your perception of the future. Um, this month, we had a 54-point drop in that index. It sort of levels at zero, goes up to plus 100 and negative 100. Um, it was the largest one-month change in our tracking since 1992. Um, that 54-point drop among Republicans, it was actually 72-point drop. Um, so that's a very kind of, when you talk about the partisanship thing, Americans tend to assess how the economy is doing based on whether they like basically the leadership in the White House lately. But what we know for much longer, that's really a, a, a phenomenon sort of in the post-Obama-Trump era. But we know for a longer period of time is the economy is always the number one thing when you ask Americans, what are the economic, what are the policy issues that are going to drive your vote? That and health care. Um, so the economic issues are going to be really, really key uh, more than ever, I think, uh, to this election. The other piece is getting this getting back to normal. Um, and we've been asking Americans whether there if there were no restrictions currently, sort of would you just get up and go back to doing what you were doing at this point? Only 21% of Americans say that they would sort of resume normal activities right now. 36% uh, say after their new cases in your state decline significantly. Another third say after there are no new cases. About 12% say that they're going to wait until a vaccine is developed. We do see a partisan split on those issues. So, for example, compared to that sort of 20% uh, for the national average, 44% of Republicans 
say that they'd sort of get back to normal right away. Um, but it's interesting that it's, you know, it's been an increase, 19-point increase in a month for Republicans, but it's still only 44%. So um, as Americans now uh, have a more optimistic view, I mean, they're still very concerned about the crisis, but when you ask about is it getting better or worse, we see more Americans now saying things are improving. Um, and the rollout, you know, sort of plays out in some of these local areas. Uh, I think it's going to determine right. the, how the politics play into the economic mm-hmm. Mohammed, great to catch up with you this morning. We appreciate hey, your time. Brief. Let's do a brief here, folks, on this May Day. Of course, a big deal in China. Henrietta Trace joins from Veda Partners on Washington policy. Henrietta, this is John and Lisa have been out fronting me on this. But, but uh, Henrietta, this is really, really caught up quickly. Let me look back, as John did yesterday on Twitter, asking if phase one is dead. Is the whole tariff dance of the last two years, is that like, done you know that's that's maybe one way to put it i think we're actually ramping into a different kind of a gear that i find a lot of similarities to the trade war that we had for the last two years um so the tariff specific conversation i don't expect especially during a recession or even a depression that we're going to escalate tariffs from here right now but they're certainly not going to come off and they're acting on and exploring a whole host of other ideas from export control restrictions, which they meaningfully expanded on Monday from the BIS, to proposals to fully decouple, whether it's on the pharmaceutical side or broader healthcare side, that is the next phase. So it's not tariff specific, but it is absolutely um, a redo of the trade war in just a different arena. Well, Henrietta, on this topic of decoupling, what is the front that you think we should pay a lot of attention to? Obviously, Senator Rubio has been pushing the financial aspect of decoupling over the last couple of years. Should we focus there? Is it elsewhere? Where are you laser focused? Uh, well, I think decoupling is something that we need to watch from a number of different fronts. So first, start off with the sectors that you think are going to have national security implications, because that's where they'll start. So that's on the pharmaceutical side. That's on chemicals. You know, they make uh, we, we use Americans use 90 percent generic drugs, which come from generic uh, products that are produced in China from their chemical plants. And they produce 90 percent of the world's supply. So it's a whole range of components that they wow. need. But then when you think about decoupling, um, you have to remember that if you're the FDA or you're a company that's creating ibuprofen or a knockoff uh, generic uh, product, you need uh, approval from the FDA, which takes anywhere from three to seven years just to form a new plant. So you can't just make a new plant in Ohio. You've got to uh, sort of repeat or have a, have another one um, somewhere else that you start to slowly get ramped up to speed so that three years from now you can eventually be decoupled. But it takes a long time. But I would imagine they start in the pharma sector, chemicals, uh, and the healthcare space with PPE and masks and all that as well. Henrietta, I remember back when we were dealing with uh, the trade wars in their first iteration in this cycle, a lot of companies were pushing back and saying this isn't good for our business and we want to do business with uh, China and we depend on these supply chains that are complicated and have been built up over time. Is there a different tone now from corporate America saying we need to domesticate our supply chains, we need to decouple for our business, not just a political reason? I think the business reasons are being driven by the political. I still, you know, despite the last three years of what we've had under President Trump and a sort of cry for nationalism and protectionism, 
Um, a lot of business owners and most economists still say that free trade is actually the best way for you to diversify in the event of a pandemic like this or in the event of uh, the need for global growth later on. If you have global trade, you use your trade and your productivity as efficiently as possible. That's a pretty standard economic model, and I think most businesses still use that. What they're layering on top now is political risk, and that sometimes is superseding the economic arguments. And so they're saying, all right, well, you know, if we can't go to China because we don't know what's going to go on with tariffs or even more insidiously, these export control restrictions, you have to get your financing outside of China. You need to get your staff outside of China um, and you need to probably produce outside of China. So a lot of folks are looking to Mexico um, as a natural backstop for another another country that might be a better opportunity for them. So I think they're still free market, still free trade but has to layer on a political calculus as a result of both President Trump's policies, but also now coronavirus, which is going to be a bipartisan opposition situation. Well, that's it, isn't it? That's the political story, and that's the story. Free trade doesn't win the November election, does it? Nope, it sure doesn't. And that's going to be the problem here on out. So let's talk about the other side of the aisle. What's Vice President, former Vice President Joe Biden's position on all of this? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually think there's a possibility that Biden could be even worse, and that's because what we've seen under Trump is a very U.S. exclusive approach. He's actually said to the EU and Japan and other nations, you know, get in line. We're going to get our deal with China. You can get your own. Um, what President Biden would say is, all right, these tariffs are all on, $360 billion worth of stuff. I like what you've done here. Now let's think about how we can get more out of China from the environmental front, from a human rights front, from an economic front. And he says, let's, let's, let's use the global rules-based world order and try to prop up the WTO, um, get the EU and Japan to join forces with us, and we all target China together. And that way, China can't just stop purchasing our pork and bring the United States farming community to its knees. We can combine forces with the EU, with Canada, with Japan, and other nations in the WTO, bolster that, and then really extract concessions from China, get them to become a developed nation, um, get them to uh, more fully participate, be more transparent, and actually extract change. So I think Biden... It's actually a worse situation for China than just President Trump, who they sort of know his playbook already. Henrietta Trace of Vader Partners. Michael Gapin is hugely qualified at Barclays, our chief U.S. economist, but with serious international experience as well. Michael, thrilled you're with us. I want to get right to wages because I know that's what all of our listeners are worried about. What will be the wage dynamic forward given claims and given that jobs report we see in exactly seven days? Well, I think it's going to be a, a very soft labor market, as Jonathan was just alluding to. And we, we have the unemployment rate you know, probably going to rise to the 18 19% range in, in April, and it will be elevated, we think, for several years. We might get a lot of reemployment over the next, say, several months and several quarters, but we think that there will be a tail to this in terms of of a high unemployment rate and soft labor market conditions for some time. And I think what's been uh, interesting, what we're watching, um, if, you, if you look back to the 0809 experience and even previous recessions, there's been a lot of nominal wage rigidity in the U.S. As you know, that's been one of the reasons we think core inflation was so stable, even though we had wide swings in the macro economy. Firms historically have been reluctant to give wage cuts. We're seeing a lot of reports and reading a lot of, of news stories where that's not the case this time. So in lieu of even more layoffs, we may actually be getting wage cuts in, in the near term that could persist for some time. 
Now, those could be taken back, but it, it might take some wow. time for that. So I think, I think we have a two, uh, a potentially a two-pronged uh, problem here where we have a lot of slack in the labor market, and at least in the near term, to preserve some employment, some actual wage cuts that may persist for several quarters uh, through the rest of the year. That's and what Michael, we're worried about. And, Michael, we have seen that from a number of companies just saying uh, we're going to cut salaries across the board by a certain proportion in order to remain solvent through this period. In a recent story in the New York Times, you were quoted saying that you expect the unemployment rate to hit 19.5% in April. Also, you said given the trillion spent, we would have hoped that federal efforts would have been more effective at stemming job losses. Given the fact that we have seen the surge in jobless rates, what does that tell you uh, about the efforts? Can you just sort of extrapolate forward in terms of what that means? Yeah, I, I think the, the, the risk here is, is that uh, you know, anytime you get laid off, even though you think it's for a short period of time and your employer says, look, we're going to do this now, the expectation is we can hire you back, you risk detachment from the labor force. You risk a, a longer spell of unemployment. You risk a deterioration uh, in, in skills. And obviously, the longer you're unemployed, the harder it is to, to get back. Uh, and, and so we, we think what you're, you're, you're ultimately risking slower potential growth and, and higher unemployment and slack for, for a period of time. Connectivity to the labor market is, is hugely important. We know that. And the way that we've done this here in the U.S. is different than is, than is being done in the U.K. And, and, and across Europe, where federal support is going directly to firms to keep employees on payrolls, where in the U.S. it's going indirectly through the financial sector. And I, and I do think the way we're doing this has meant more unemployment than, than I think we, we would like, certainly. Uh, and and I, our concern is it's going to lead to a lot more prolonged spells of, of unemployment than we're comfortable with. Uh, so I'm, I, obviously nobody's pleased with where this unemployment rate is going to go, and I do think the, the way that we structured some of this aid is, is a, a contributing factor. The Federal Reserve is likely going to want to keep rates low for a long, long time, and Tom's been on top of this through the morning. Michael, just sitting on the front end of the yield curve will be the Federal Reserve, and I imagine they're going to produce some kind of forward guidance to convince us that this is going to be the story for a long, long time. And I think what is forgotten often is that two-year rates after the financial crisis 10 years ago actually didn't bottom out until 2011. It took a long time, Michael, for this market to come round to the idea that rates weren't going higher back to where they were anytime soon. What has the Fed learned from that period, and how do they apply that to guidance this time around? Well, I think they, they can move uh, directly to threshold-based guidance. Now, it just does depend on how they conclude their, their framework review and do they move to a makeup strategy on inflation. But I think they can shift right away to thresholds of unemployment and inflation uh, that, that would dictate how long they expect to be at zero. I also think that they're strongly considering yield curve control, uh, that you could do that out to save two to three years on, on the yield curve to complement and strengthen that forward guidance. So it would be a signal that, yes, we have an outcomes-based approach, of course, and we're not going to raise the funds rate off the zero lower bound until we get this combination of inflation uh, and unemployment data. And just to reinforce right. this, we're going we're to pin the yield curve at zero. If you're just joining us, Michael Gavin with us with Barclays. Thrilled he could be with us on this May at first. I'm trying to figure out yield curve management within the banking and financial system of the U.S. I just I, That'll be sport, Michael. Uh, one of the big splashes this week was Nariana Kachalakota in our Federal Reserve show 
talking, Michael, about negative interest rates. And he created a modest uproar in economics by saying two, three meetings from now, this Fed will be considering negative interest rates, as John mentions, a suppressed two-year yield. And there's economists that just say the guy from Dylan Reed is never going to do this. Is it even thinkable, Michael Gapin, that we would have the facts change so that we would consider going out of Europe? I don't think so. I, I'm in the camp that says the Fed has studied this extensively for years. When I was at the board in, in 2008, 2009, this was on under discussion. And, and I think it's, it's been about a 10-year story where every time they've looked at this, they've consistently come back and felt that it's more trouble than, than it's worth. So I, I don't think we're going to switch to that. I think there are other ways to deliver monetary policy support to, to the economy. The structure of the U.S. is different than, than it is in Europe, and I think it would cause a lot of disruption to short-term funding markets that the Fed doesn't want to deal with. Just to, to sort of continue with the Federal Reserve, its balance sheet, the latest read, which came out yesterday evening, $6.7 trillion, that's the current size of its balance sheet. Many people expect that to uh, exceed $10 trillion by the end of this year. How concerned are you about an increasing politicization of the Federal Reserve as its actions and those of the of the Treasury Department get more interlinked and the Fed essentially monetizes the U.S.'s debt? I, th I think in terms of balance sheet size, I'm less concerned because now we, we had a, a Democratic administration and a Republican administration and the, the balance sheet has expanded under both. So we've had both sides of the political aisle uh, accept the fact that a large balance sheet is, is what we need to, to help support the recovery. Uh, but I think you, you bring up a good point, which is virtually every one of these lending facilities is a joint Fed Treasury facility. And, and we think that there's going to be a deficit of 14 or 15 percent of GDP this year. And ongoing Fed purchases in some ways can be viewed as potentially monetizing some, some of that debt. So certainly we need coordination between monetary and, and fiscal. The Fed just has a tough communication act here really to say, look, we're just acting as an agent of the Treasury. And, and so they want us to do this. We're facilitating this. This is our role to help get liquidity and, and credit to households and business. It's a tricky line to walk, uh, but I do think that they can execute it without getting dragged into the political fray too much. Michael, before we let you go, just quickly, 10 a.m., one hour and 20 minutes from now, the ISM for manufacturing, new orders, prices paid, employment. What are you focused on? How should we digest that data when it comes out? Well, I think certainly that it's obviously going to be a bad number. We, we're going to be paying very close attention to the new orders component and the export component, as well as employment. So I, I think it's, this is, it's another one of these numbers that we know it's bad. We know things were, were shut down for, for the entire month, but we just we need to know how bad. So I think that we'll, we'll take our lead mainly from the, the data points that suggest to us how intertwined is this globally and, and new orders and, and export orders are, are one way to look at that. You know, I, and, and what I would do is relate this to what we've seen in China. China can't rebound as strongly when the rest of the world is, is contracting. Their manufacturing sector has rebounded, but it's been a, a pretty moderate and tepid rebound in part because global demand is so weak. So I think it's, it's that type of inter, interrelation that could show through in this report. Michael, fantastic to get up to speed with you, that's for sure. I hope the team at Barclays are doing well. Michael Gapin there of Barclays, the chief U.S. economist. We start May with a wonderful medical coverage we have tried to bring you 
among universities worldwide, and particularly in Baltimore, Maryland, the Johns Hopkins University. And each of their professors has a different expertise, a different character. Our Francine Lacroix in conversation with Andrew Pecos, the virologist. Let's listen. So remdesivir has had um, a couple of reports out this week. Um, One report from the NIH has shown that there's some significant promise of that treatment and that if it's given early enough in the course of infection, it seems to improve the time in which people uh, get better and can leave the hospital. Um, A report out of China has suggested it was less successful, but it looks like those patients were being treated much later in the disease process at a time when it's not just the virus that's causing damage, but it's also your immune response to the infection that's causing damage. So I would say there's cautious optimism right now with remdesivir, uh, but it certainly does seem like it's going to be a treatment that is probably more effective the sooner one gets it the rather unemployment than later report in the is infection it- process. What do you think will be a real game changer? So we talk about having apps. I know there are concerns about, of course, you know, personal information, but that could you know, let you get in contact with people that have been touched or have been in, in close contact with someone who is COVID-19 positive. There's also antibody testing. What will be a real game changer of you know, saving lives, but also um, getting people to get out of the lockdown? Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, I think the, the better we are at treating individuals and getting them out of the hospital uh, to free up resources, that's going to be one important thing. Because what that will do is that will free up uh, more medical resources, it'll free up testing resources, and that'll allow us to switch to this sort of late phase of dealing with the pandemic. Um, we have a lot of hope for antibody tests. Um, over the next couple of weeks, we should get some idea of whether or not antibodies, or what kind of antibodies are mediating protection from reinfection. And once we know that, we can really go after people in the population and identify people who should have a higher resistance to infection. And that will then really allow us to come forward with um, a much more detailed plan for how to open up our economy and loosen some of the public health interventions that that most of the world is currently under. Andrew, in 20 seconds, are we going to be much wiser about this virus in two months? Two months or will it take longer? Two months, we will know incredibly more about the virus, in particular how we treat it and um, how we respond to it. Uh, the Johns Hopkins University, and we thank him and all of his team really through April and March uh, for their wisdom here. We should point out that with Johns Hopkins University is the Bloomberg School of Public Health, uh, and they've been a big support as well. We should point out that Michael Bloomberg, the founder of Bloomberg LP, and also this television and radio station has been a philanthropist to his Johns Hopkins University. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.